Broadcasting from room 201 in the La Quinta Inn in Fort Collins, Colorado. This is Campus Reach Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 89, Andy Stanley and Beth Allison Barr. Welcome, everybody. I, I gave it a pause. I was thought uh, I, was, uh, <laughs> I don't have the sewer recorded with me, so I can't uh, put the, put the uh, sewer in there, my normal theme music, but one day we'll get it back. Uh, this is the Campus Preacher Podcast, uh, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism, and I am your host, Keith Darrell, and I am on the road again, traveling, and I am currently in Denver, well, north of Denver, Colorado, in Fort Collins, Colorado, as I said, in the La Quinta Inn. And uh, funny enough, this is the second time I've stayed here, and both times I've stayed here, I've had a problem. Um, so anyway, a little bit of a problem here. I preached at the University of Utah today, which was a little slow sledding, except for some friendly police officers, and a cult, uh, namely the International Church of Christ, and then some uh, mild interaction with uh, a Chi Alpha minister. And then uh, some guy, I think, wanted to put me on his TikTok channel. He asked me what the average... Uh, what I thought the average girl, how, what the body count was of the average girl at the University of Utah. And so I asked him, are you the average man at the University of Utah? He says, why? And I said, because if you're the average man, it's zero because nobody's going to sleep with you. Boom, boom. So that's, uh, so hopefully they don't publish it. I'll be curious if, if they do, but uh that's what happened today at the University of Utah. Uh, and then I drove uh, however many hours to get here. And what I want to do today is talk about Andy Stanley and Beth Allison Barr. Two weeks ago, I had a podcast where I discussed chapter one of Beth Allison Barr's book, and it's not a great book, so I'm not going to finish it, to be honest with you. I think it's uh, pretty much rubbish, and it's not really worth going through the pages. I thought it was going to be because there's like 1,500 Amazon reviews, and it's like you know four and a half, five-star type uh, reviews, and it had a little bit of headway, but um, I think anybody with some basics... Um, in biblical theology and understanding the text, we'll realize how uh, shallow her arguments actually are. And she's trying to do it from a historical standpoint. Cause like I mentioned two weeks ago, she kind of is following Gerda Lerner and she doesn't really understand. She's not really laid forth in anthropology for what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. And that she tells us just about on every page as an historian. So she's always reminding us that she's an historian. So as an historian, she seems to be uh, accepting the view that what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman is socially constructed. And there is no kind of like essence of femaleness or essence of maleness. And um, we would just flat disagree. We believe that Adam is basically the prototype man, Eve, the prototype woman. And there is a uh, one in many, there's a relationship of every woman into Eve and every man into Adam. And even if you just consider the judgment on Adam and the judgment on Eve, obviously no man, despite what our culture is contending, has ever suffered Eve's judgment upon him uh, at all. So it's uh, it's a foolish uh, it's a foolish book. But I am just going to brush on chapter two because she does kind of deal with Paul's arguments, and um, it's the sort of thing where people in our position should just say, "Yeah, we don't disagree with anything you're saying." in a sense, and then correct them. But the thing I wanted to do before that was brush on uh, a little bit of Andy Stanley. Now, Andy Stanley, uh, maybe about a week ago, he had a tweet that said this, the Christian faith doesn't rise and fall on the accuracy of 66 ancient documents. It rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. And you know, he got the typical Andy Stanley blowback. Um, I've mentioned before on this podcast, as well as on Twitter, that uh, I think it was 2018, maybe 2019, when he had unhitching the Old Testament. 
And um, I did a three-part series in response to Annie Stanley's kind of nonsense in that um, series. And this tweet here is kind of um, careless as well, but I made a comment about it that I said I was going to do a blog about it or a a podcast about it. And uh, Annie Stanley was uh, gracious enough to actually email me. And he just said, hey, if I can clarify anything about my position before you record your podcast, uh, please let me know. And so I got it. Um, He's East Coast. I was West Coast. And so I got it um, several hours um, or well, he wrote it several hours before I kind of woke up. I wake up I see it. I'm laying in bed. And unfortunately, I didn't wait till I got to my computer. I laid in bed and cranked out a few questions for him. And I kind of wish I would have woken up, had my coffee, and then asked him some questions. And what I want to do is, first of all, obviously just give him credit that he was willing to uh, email me and just say, hey, if, if I can clarify anything, please let me know. So I shot him a few questions. And I will say that all of his answers, I think, does keep him in the orthodox camp. So for example, I just kind of asked him about his views of inerrancy. And uh, he said I can share anything um, in these emails. So I'll just uh, uh, respond with a couple things. He says, I studied under Norman Geisler at Dallas uh, Theological Seminary. He edited the book used in every conservative theological school entitled uh, Inerrancy, which is actually a pretty good book. And Greg Bonson um, has a, a article or like a, yeah, I guess a chapter in there about the autographa and their inerrancy and uh, what that means for us. And that's actually a pretty good chapter. So it is like a pretty standard fair uh, evangelical defense of inerrancy. He says, so yes, I have affirmed that in multiple interviews and seminars, even John Piper defended my belief in the doctrine of inerrancy. And I, I didn't hunt down that thing from John Piper. Um, and so I, you know, to his credit, he does say that. But I do think he is basically kind of treading dangerously to, to say, you know, Christianity doesn't rely on uh, these books and kind of like take away with one hand when he kind of gives back with the other. And here, here's what the issue is. He gave a talk um, probably three years ago, maybe two years ago at um, Dallas Theological Seminary. And unfortunately, I cannot remember the name of the talk. But in that talk, basically what he wanted to do was lay, he lays out his project a little bit. And in a sense, what he's kind of doing is trying to borrow from Gary Habermas's kind of minimal facts apologetic. And that's where he just kind of keeps camping out on the resurrection, this resurrection event, this resurrection event. Um, because the reality is you and I uh, do not have the ability Uh, to quote-unquote defend inerrancy. It's kind of a presupposition that we have. And so when Joe Unbeliever starts peppering us with uh, questions, uh, can we show that every single verse of the Bible is without error in everything that it teaches and instructs? Uh, The simple answer is no. Uh, I've I've read the Bible through several times. I've not gone through and uh, verified every historical event. I assume every historical event happened. Uh, But if I was challenged to demonstrate the historicity of every event, uh, what level of kind of like validity, um, uh, would I be able to bring each sentence up to, um, or each verse of the Bible up to? And many people would just say, well, that's, you know, that's why we're presuppositionalists and we just take the, uh, and if it wasn't for the authority of God's word, we'd, um, we wouldn't know truth and, and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, m- maybe, maybe we could respond that way, but it's a little bit ships in the night. Uh, but, but so what he's trying to do here is, is find an apologetic and find a method of communication with people, uh, that is, kind of in a sense transferable and the average person can take and uh, kind of run with. And I've even done things like this on campus in apologetics. And and, and there's a sense in which I have no qualms in and of itself with Gary Habermas's uh, project or um, 
with, with mild qualifications, because here's the thing, those of us in our circles, and uh, I'm assuming if you're listening to this podcast, you're kind of a fight, leaf, fight laugh, feast type of guy. Um, you're probably largely uh, persuaded of reform theology. You're probably largely persuaded of presuppositional apologetics. And uh, you got there over years of study, probably, and years of thinking about things. And many of you have come from kind of uh, maybe like a megachurch or a broader Baptist church or uh, an evidentialist type uh, apologetic and stuff like that. And then over time, you kind of come to a place and a lot of pieces begin to f- uh, fall into place for you. And you kind of reach a point where you're just kind of like, yeah, it's the whole enchilada. And so every time you go to evangelize somebody or talk to somebody on the outside, you're kind of giving them the whole enchilada of what Christianity believes. And what Andy is trying to get at is basically, no, we don't have to give them the whole enchilada. Uh, we can just give them a, a bite-sized piece, which is uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we don't need to go into every discussion and defend every jot and tittle of the Bible, even though we do want to defend every jot and tittle of the Bible. But it's kind of like, how do you really give people milk? And what does that milk look like? And we can differ with him and stuff like that, obviously, and I do, because I do think that half of the New Testament's witness regarding the resurrection isn't in and of itself that they're eyewitnesses, but they're eyewitnesses of the fulfillment of the Mosaic scriptures. So we can't unhitch uh, Jesus from it because his resurrection was according to the scriptures. He died according to the scriptures, was buried, was raised up on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures is that? And that was one of the places I had a little bit of a qualms with him in our little back and forth is I made a comment he's uh, regarding um, uh, the Old Testament scriptures and uh, he told me this in response. Let me see what my question is exactly. Um, I asked him, um, the, the, the creed in 1 Corinthians 15.3 was probably, or could, have, could be dated within six months of the early church. And so I asked him, do you fully affirm that the death, the burial and resurrection of Jesus, the death and resurrection on the third day was in accordance with the scriptures? If so, what scriptures? And then I just kind of put in brackets, Hebrew Bible is sufficient opposed to particular texts. And so that's what I kind of asked him. And he just said, uh, you'll have to fact check me on this one. Uh, there is no Greek term for scripture. Uh, the term scripture is not a translation of the Greek. It's a word superimposed on the text. The term scripture is an English derivation of Latin term. The Greek phrase translated scripture is the writings, um, which is like just, I think it's like grapha, graphos, graphos, um, which would lead us to which writings? Uh, when we see the term scripture, we automatically impose a religious or sacred definition. That was not the case in either the Greek text or the Hebrew text. Um, I, I, I don't really understand that last part that he got there. Um, but I think Paul's point, and that's why I even put in brackets the Hebrew scriptures. And so uh, at the end of Luke chapter 24, uh, Jesus basically said, everything written about me in the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, uh, these things were written about me. And then repentance and forgiveness of sins uh, in all nations must be preached in fulfillment of the scriptures. So I, I was trying to be relatively clear. Maybe I could have spelled out a little bit more of what scriptures exactly they were. But I feel like he would kind of hedge. And I think that's kind of the problem with this project is that he's not willing to go in for the whole enchilada. And I'm, I'm, I don't feel like I have to in every apologetic endeavor. So even sometimes when I'm talking to an apostate, if I'm on campus and someone tells them that they left the faith, I'll just ask them, so you no longer believe Jesus rose from the dead. And it's amazing how many of them will pause at that point, because it's almost like they don't want to say, no, I don't believe that anymore. Um, 
So even as you're talking to uh, people who are deconstructing and all that sort of stuff, I, I do think it's a good idea to keep the resurrection front and center. Uh, the death, the burial, resurrection of Jesus is of first importance. Uh, we do believe it's also according to the scriptures. So anyway, I, I do appreciate him uh, getting in touch with me. I, I can appreciate what he's trying to do. I don't have a huge problem with Gary Habermas's project and um, even some of what uh, Andy's trying to do here because I, I do something very similar on campus. I'm I. In your first interaction with people who do not know the gospel, you just can't give them everything. And Paul, uh, you know, again, without distorting too much, and the, the hard part is this is there's there's so much to discuss. But in Acts chapter seventeen, Paul's not just quoting tons of scripture. And in our circles, it's kind of like, oh, you know, you don't defend the line, you kind of let it out of the you kind of let it out of the cage. And there's truth to that. But everything Paul says in Acts chapter seventeen is biblical. But he's not just quoting scripture to a bunch of Gentiles. And I think we need a little more wisdom. And he does preach uh, the resurrection and the judgment. Um, and he says he he's proves that he's going to judge the world and righteous by raising a man from the dead. And so um, I'm, I was kind of glad. I'll just say I was glad he reached out to me. I was glad he's willing to take time to answer my questions. And, uh, you know, if I wanted to have a further back and forth, I'm sure he would have been willing. I just wish I would have uh, sat down at a computer and been a little more cogent when I uh, peppered him with some questions. So anyway, that's what I wanted to cover on Annie Stanley. The other thing I wanted to cover ever so briefly is Beth Allison Barr's book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, and kind of wrap it up just because it really is kind of a, a rubbish book and not really worth your time. Uh, but in chapter two, the essence of her argument. So you have these things called the household codes, uh, codes, which are found in Colossians three and Ephesians five are kind of the main ones where wives submit to your husbands uh, is kind of uh, talked about. And it's one of those things that come up oftentimes. And what Beth Allison Barr basically wants to argue is that those texts are not about women's submission. Um, but instead, you know, you have mutual submission and what's the, the text is emphasizing is the deconstruction basically of Roman house codes. Okay, so a Roman house code, and you find something like this in Aristotle, uh, it did give almost like an absolute authority to the man. And the housing, the women and the children and the slaves and all that sort of stuff basically existed for the man. And that's not a biblical view. So if you go back to chapter one, uh, even Dr. Russell Moore lays out there's pagan patriarchy and there's Christian patriarchy. Uh, the the Roman house codes would be an example of pagan patriarchy. Uh, what takes place in Islam would be a, an example of pagan patriarchy. So as Christians, we don't look at Islam and say, yep, there's patriarchy. Uh, we, we believe that's an abuse of uh, what God has ordained, just as uh, egalitarianism is an abuse of what God has ordained. And we can step back and say, yep, Beth, Allison Barr, absolutely, we can agree with you that the Roman house codes were errant because uh, the, it created the man as being an absolute authority. And even the man, just as the master over the slave, uh, has a Lord. And so Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And there is a feminist named, um, I can't think of her first two names, uh, Fiorentini. Um, and she, interestingly enough, uh, wanted to get rid of the term patriarchy and use kiriarchy uh, because kiriarchy, kirios, Lord, kiriarchy, any sort of uh, lording uh, over another. Um, but Christianity at root, Jesus Christ is Lord. And, and so maybe an easy way to understand the difference between, uh, say, a Roman house code and a Christian house code, uh, the Romans believed that Caesar is Lord. The Christians come along, and we can say they appropriated it, if you want, and they confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Both groups believe in a Lord, um, but Jesus is Lord. So similarly, in a household, uh, both groups believe that men are the head or men are an authority in the home. Uh, but we can still, just as we understand Jesus' lordship differently than Caesar's, we can understand a man's rule in his household as a Christian being different than um, pagans. So it's really not difficult. And one of the one of the things to kind of uh, fit in here where, you know, when people do want to kind of argue the, the mutual submission thing, one thing to be clear, and uh, this is a, a commentary in the uh, Baker 
commentary series. And what's interesting is the guy kind of wants to, uh, he's not really an egalitarian, but he wants to separate verse 21 um, from what's going on in 18 through 21. So in Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, it says this, be filled in the spirit, speaking among yourselves with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to Lord, giving thanks always for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is also father, submitting to each other in fear of the Lord. So those four things, speaking, singing, making melody, giving thanks, and submitting are all part of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. So there is a sense that as a Christian community, uh, we're looking to uh, submit to one another. We're looking to serve one another. We're we're willing to uh, consider the weaker brother. Um, uh, And so, so it's not... So as Christians, we don't totally rule out the idea of some strand of mutual submission going on within the Christian church, even well, you consider Philippians chapter two, uh, but, but basically he says, you know, uh, have this attitude in you, which is the same as in Christ Jesus, who though being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to grasp, but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So have this mind in you, which is the same in Christ Jesus. And just as Christ Jesus humbled himself and served uh, his church and served us, there is a sense in which we should have no qualms and being like, yeah, there's a sense in which uh, we affirm that. So when the mutual submission people come along, we can kind of affirm it in a, in a certain sense, but then that doesn't negate that a man's the head of the household. It doesn't negate that parents are uh, authorities over their children. It doesn't negate the fact that a master is an authority over a slave. Um, and, and so the side, so the mutual submission is not that parents, including mothers should be submitting to their children. Uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, the parents don't serve their children and consider their children, uh, nor does it invert the roles of slave master. Although, as we see in Wadnesimus and Philemon, um, if that's being properly understood, the treatment of the master to the slave is going to be adjusted. So, uh, you, you know, she, she makes all this to do about, uh, you know, Roman culture and Roman authority and all this sort of stuff. And we can just step back like, yeah, no, we don't, we don't disagree with that at all. Um, but you still haven't touched the heart that Paul is still selling wives submit to your husbands. Now, if it's just mutual submission, why does, why is there a double emphasis on women submitting twice? And the thing that's kind of funny when we get to this chapter in the book and Beth is all for kind of mutual submission throughout the first chapter, every time she mentions submission, it's almost like it's a dirty word. Um, but then you get to mutual submission and somehow it's a good word. Um, so anyway, I'm going to be done with this book because it's, it's not really, I thought it was going to be better, uh, than it was. And I thought it would be interesting to kind of go through it, uh, because it is a sort of thing, male, female stuff comes, is going to come up all the time in your apologetic. And, uh, one last kind of side, cool thing. I was at Trinity covenant church in Santa Cruz, on Sunday. And if you get a chance, maybe just listen to the sermon because he actually is preaching from Ephesians 5. And what's interesting is he was raised in San Francisco by two lesbian parents. And uh, when he was about 20 years old, I believe it was, if I remember correctly, he was converted because he was staying in his cousin's house and they were Christians and he picked up a book and it talked about male-female submission and he went out back and went to have a debate with them about it. And uh, the, the, dad, the man was like, yeah, no, I'm the head of the household. And the wife was like, yeah, he is. And uh, that was the beginning of his conversion. So it's also something that we don't have to be ashamed of or afraid of or keep in the closet um, that we, we often do, which kind of ties in with the apologetic of Andy Stanley. We just need wisdom. The bottom line is when you're doing apologetics, when you're talking to people, uh, fear God. Uh, fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you do not fear God, you're going to be a resounding gong in whoever you're interacting with because you're going to try to get them to conform to whatever you want the agenda to be. But you need to be like Jesus with the woman at the well or Jesus with the Pharisees or um, Jesus with the rich young ruler or whatever it is or Nic- um, Nicodemus and Lazarus is you want to treat the individuals before you uh, if you're filled with the spirit 
talking to people as they need to be talked about um, or, or talked to. So anyway, uh, we're going to move on from that book, and um, I'm kind of glad Andy Stanley uh, messaged me. Hopefully, that might provide a little bit of clarity. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations regarding anything I said, feel free to reach out to me, Keith Darrell at Gmail, Campus Evangel on Twitter, Campus Preacher on Instagram, Keith Darrell on Facebook. Although, come the 17th, I may get locked out of Facebook. I have not updated my... Uh, security settings. And apparently I'm such an influencer, they want me to have extra security settings. Um, So anyway, uh, Lord willing, I will talk to you next week. Pray for my preaching and just pray for me in general. I'd appreciate it. Lord bless you. Keep you. Talk to you then.